You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. Is it really possible to grow your business in a global pandemic? We'll find out when we talk to two of McKinsey's growth gurus, as I call them. Brian Gregg is a senior partner in San Francisco who co-leads McKinsey's marketing and sales practice in North America. And Amy Kim is a senior partner at Asol who leads the marketing and sales practice in Asia. Brian and Amy, welcome. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Diane. So back in May, you co-wrote a piece on rapid revenue recovery. Brian, rapid revenue recovery, those are not three words that I've heard put together very often during this pandemic. You're right, Diane. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, But rapid revenue recovery is exactly the kinds of words we found many executives and frankly, our clients coming to us as the pandemic emerged and as it's persisted, um, you know, rapid meaning as fast as humanly possible, right? Revenue meaning the top line sales, how to get that engine going again. And then recovery, because let's face it, a lot of the uncertainty out there has forced a, a lot of companies to be in recovery and crisis mode. That's why they all come together. In terms of what's changed since we published our article a couple months, I think the answer is a lot. And this is where, Amy, I'd love to hear your perspective coming at it from Asia. But in North America, we've learned quite a bit. And for one, uh, since this whole pandemic began, we've seen consumers have drastically changed. I mean, talk about a epic human experiment. Putting aside for a moment the crisis itself and the humanitarian loss that we're all witnessing and recognizing that, if you just look at this from uh, a true behavioral change shift, it's quite extraordinary. What we're seeing with consumers right now is they're not just trading down. Like going to generic versions of what we used to buy from big brands? Going to generic versions, looking for the lower price points, right? And essentially consumers looking to uh, only buy what they needed for the lowest price possible. What we're seeing now in this particular very unique situation is consumers trading, period. Not just down, but trading from offline physical shopping to online right? Mm-hmm. Uh, trading from brands that they used to know and trust to really switching to new brands that they might either see and discover online or ones that are offering different propositions around safety and hygiene. So it's really a, 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 a moment to just step back and recognize what's happened in the last 90 days, something really never been seen before on a consumer front. Mm-hmm. And we've learned quite a bit from that human experiment. Amy, given those changes, it would seem that uh, growth is potentially more difficult now than it was when you wrote this article. I think the answer will be quite different by geography. Even within Asia, we have some markets where uh, the lockdown is pretty much still in full force, whereas we also have markets like China where uh, the average Chinese consumer would argue that business is pretty much as usual, uh, setting aside the travel uh, restrictions. Uh, so I do think that slowly but surely, a lot of companies have figured out how to crack the code and really re-engage this very changed consumer, as Brian has just described. And so growth is not only possible, but it is happening. I do want to emphasize that the traits that Brian described are absolutely uh, true for Asian consumers as well. 
if anything, if we tie that with the growth uh, question that you just raised, Diane, the companies that are able to capture the imagination, engage the consumer, the new consumer, who has completely different expectations about what hygiene means in physical retail, what delivery speeds mean on the e-commerce side, et cetera. Those are the companies that will really win. And I think one more thing I would add is that this pandemic has been probably the biggest onboarding exercise for e-commerce. In Asia, we're seeing the last consumer segments, the ones who are holding off in embracing e-commerce, they've really been forced to, to buy online. And I'm referring to people who are typically older, uh, so mid-50s and above. They had their favorite shop in the neighborhood that they would frequent and were really resistant about buying online. And the retailers that have been able to deliver a good experience are able to actually retain these consumers. And so the channel mix and the landscape going forward has completely changed. And I think of that Shakespeare quote, Brian, of some are born great and some have greatness thrust upon them. It seems like digital would be a good analogy here where everybody went digital, but some seem to do it a little better than others. Oh, for sure, Diane. What we're talking now about uh, a K-shaped recovery. K-shaped? I've never heard of a K-shaped recovery. Well, let let me try and paint the vision here and see how how clear it becomes. (laughs) If you think of the two legs of a K, right, there's one that points up and one that goes the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. And to your Shakespearean quote, you know, those who are either already positioned well in a digital world or those who have been able to quickly, rapidly pivot there, those are the ones on the good side of the K, meaning going up. The ones that are taking a slower time to repivot and actually reground themselves in a digital first world are, of course, having a much harder time with this. This is going to be a moment that separates more so than ever the winners and the others. And it's this digital shift that Amy's talking about that's the biggest separator. We refer to it as um, really exposing the winners versus the losers. And it's really become a situation where there's nowhere to hide. The companies who have been investing in digital capabilities, who have been thinking about how to connect online and offline, those are the ones who are really emerging and actually accelerating growth uh, amidst this pandemic. Whereas Brian just mentioned, uh, the companies who have been a bit less aggressive or proactive on that front are really feeling the pain in, in many cases. What are the aspects that really have made a big difference? Is it that last mile of how quickly they get my stuff to me? Or is it other factors you think that are causing that separation? Brian? We actually looked at this very question uh, because so many of our own clients and executives and boards are asking similar questions. And while this is still new and the cement is certainly still wet in the answer to your question, what our research is starting to show is that there are five markers of what companies who are on the upshifts here are doing versus those who aren't. So maybe I'll hit all five real quickly. And then, uh, Amy, I'd love to hear your take on what you're seeing and how this may manifest itself in the Asian context as well. Um, the first one we already talked about, right? Those who are able to truly uh, embrace this digital surge, absolutely marker number one. And the second one is, is one we're referring to as the granularity of recovery. Uh, which is essentially companies who are able to get much more granular about how they capture demand when it's there is a winning trait. Here in the United States, for an example, 
I had one client the other day say, this isn't one virus, this is 50 viruses. And if you actually break it down, it's 500 viruses because the way consumers are ready to buy and shop is a very localized decision right now. So it's customization and data. Is that the differentiator in that category? It is. The ability to get granular, to personalize and customize at a local level is the differentiator there. Mm -hmm. That's a, a second example or a second marker. The third one we found is this, uh, is this element we're calling virtual agility. Many workforces have been forced to go virtual, as many know. Uh, but the ability to stay fast, rapid, and be able to respond in the moment, and I'm not talking about quarterly business reviews. I'm talking about daily, hourly shifts and pivots and where you focus your resources. That's the third marker of what we're really seeing successful companies do. The fourth one we're calling business model reimagination. This idea that while you have to manage the crisis in front of you, of course, on an hourly basis in many cases, the ability to step back from that and imagine when we do emerge out of this current pandemic, what is the business model shifts that are going to be there and how do you take advantage or participate in those now? And then the fifth and final one, uh, one we call self-funded growth, which is basically saying, how do you use this moment to truly rewrite the entire P&L? And places where you've always wanted to make shifts as a company, now is a great moment to rip the Band-Aid off, be able to save money that maybe wasn't being directed in the right places, and use those dollars to invest in growth. So self-fund your own growth curve. Yeah, How are those playing out in uh, Asia, Amy? I'm thinking of you know, ripping off Band-Aids and self-funding. There doesn't seem to be a lot of money around, but there's certainly a lot of pain. There is a lot of pain, Diane. I think some players in Asia actually have still been able to weather the storm and are really doing well. If I just talk about a few of the five markers that Brian alluded to, you know, granular granularity. In China, there are digital agencies that will be able to pinpoint a consumer's uh, physical location within two meters. So they literally are able to track a consumer who is roaming in a department store, which beauty counter is she in front of? And coupling that type of geolocation data with the consumer spend data, with other data that these digital breadcrumbs that brands are collecting about their individual consumers are allowing certain companies to really do personalized marketing like never before. And so it really is super granular. Virtual agility is also the name of the game. Again, if I give you an example of a Chinese mobility player, during the lockdown, and we're talking about literally one or two weeks after the initial Wuhan uh, situation uh, occurred, mm -hmm. this Chinese mobility player was able to run thousands of campaigns in a super agile way in order to pinpoint what really worked for different consumers. And it was able to protect 90% of the revenues during the lockdown, where the average Chinese business was looking at 10% if they were lucky. Wow. How are they doing now? Did they continue on that trajectory? Oh, absolutely. They're doing very, very well and uh, eating their competitors uh, up day by day. One common theme, uh, if we kind of step back and look at these winning players, is the fact that they actually were sitting on a lot of consumer data and they really understood their consumer. If you ask me, what is the underpinning uh, requirement to really excel on these five markers of future success, I think one is definitely understanding your consumer. 
earlier you mentioned, is it about the last mile? Is it about having a good fulfillment system? All of those are extremely important. But it all starts from understanding what does the consumer want? For instance, we know from our research that despite all the talk about fast delivery, many more consumers are far more interested and demanding in transparency or visibility. So it's much more important to be able to track where their parcel is as opposed to getting it immediately. And so really understanding what the consumer values and quickly pivoting your business model, your services to cater to that, that is how you actually weather the storm and you continue to grow in this situation. It feels like the consumer mindset around data has changed a bit. Like we're more willing to do track and trace. We're more interested in personalization. Brian, have you found that to be the case? And is that an opportunity that brands need to explore? The truth on the data acceptance and the privacy concerns that consumers have had is that there was always a threshold for which consumers would be willing to give their data. As long as the value exchange is there, right? Um, consumers will be willing to, to give more and more. And what this pandemic has brought upon many of the segments of consumers and cohorts of consumers is a different set of value that they're looking for. You know, um, guarantees of safety, uh, wanting to know how much contact is going to have to happen in order to have a transaction completed. These are all things that weren't even on the hierarchy of needs less than a year ago. And now all of a sudden have catapulted to the top. And so in that world, what is new and what is different is consumers' willingness to give information about themselves, where they live, um, who they are, for guarantees on some of these new needs. It does feel like that is an area where we see a geographic divide. Amy, what do you find in terms of the different markets you look at? I think um, there's a general acceptance that uh, sharing your at times, personal data is really uh, required uh, in order to protect the broader social uh, health and welfare. So in most Asian markets during the pandemic, I think the government, private companies, and individual consumers are all beginning to stack hands and are much more open uh, to doing this. And it's because, as Brian just mentioned, there's this fundamental belief that there's value. There's something coming back to me individually by doing that. What's interesting is that um, it's not a one-way street. Uh, consumers obviously are a bit more open in providing their information, whether it's uh, in return for a personalized marketing campaign that is really valuable to them or because it's extremely convenient for them. But retailers are also much more proactive in some instances in sharing back their information. Uh, for example, the other day I was uh, chuckling because one of our uh, team members had ordered lunch and the online delivery system had stapled a piece of paper on the lunchbox and it literally had the body temperature of all the employees that had touched the box. And, you know, it doesn't get <laughs> better so than that's that. That's good lunchtime reading. Tell me a bit, Brian, about the conversations you're hearing from CEOs and even that category of reimagination. It feels aspirational at this point. Are people still in crisis mode? It does depend. This pandemic has been with us now, depending on what, what country or what city you're in, five, six, seven months. And at a certain point, 
there's just fatigue that starts to set in. And I was actually speaking to a CEO of a retailer just this past week who was commenting on how to reach an element of sustainability uh, with the the maniacal focus that the crisis forces upon a retailer. Think about this. This is a retailer who had to shut all their stores just three months ago. Mm-hmm. What he was saying to me was, you know, we did all the scenario planning you'd ever hope for, but in not one scenario did I ever plan for all our stores to be shut and for every shopper to have to stay home for almost a year. Fair enough. And he said, so the, yeah. the one thing I'm betting on right now is our ability to not only manage through the crisis today, tomorrow, the next day, but to pull our heads up and to think about what's this going to look like next year and the year after. And he said, Brian, what, what I've got to think through is what if stores never open? Or what if this vaccine doesn't happen for two, three years? I hope it's not true, but I have to plan for that. And that's where his business model reimagination insights started to come in of where will I therefore be able to engage my consumer and where will I actually earn operating profit? And how does that look completely different if stores never do open? So he's asked his team to actually spend the time, even though today they're managing through door openings and getting employees back in, all the things that take real time. He's asked them to reserve resources and mindshare for imagining 2022, 2023. How do we shift our business model accordingly? Wow. I picture myself uh, sitting in my living room for two years. Doesn't sound like an opportunity for me to buy, but Amy, what are some of the more innovative models? It's it's not simply just e-commerce continuing, is it? It isn't. A lot of uh, brands are thinking about how do I engage the consumer, not only through e-commerce, because that's not the only way consumers in their natural element want to engage and experience the brand. There is a role for the physical store. How does that store have to change? So a lot of discussions we're having these days is about rethinking the format of the store. Does it have to be a big store, which typically draws in a lot of crowds? Will consumers be comfortable in that setting? Or do you want to uh, reduce the number of large formats and actually have smaller stores that are much more in the neighborhood so that the customer doesn't have to travel long distances or take a subway or go through mass transport and again be exposed to the crowds. So there's a lot of thinking about not necessarily pivoting completely to online only, but also thinking about how you change your existing store formats to make it much more comfortable uh, and convenient for the customer to visit. One Japanese uh, shopping mall operator actually is taking this opportunity to completely rethink their tenant strategy, and they're using advanced analytics to forecast what type of product categories will still relatively be sought in the offline environment, because the product is something that consumers will still want to touch and feel before making a purchase. And they're actually deciding maybe we should increase our tenant mix in those categories. Whereas what type of tenants do we probably think will go predominantly online? And therefore, we should probably reduce our tenant mix. And also going back to managing operating profits, a lot of uh, mall operators are thinking up much more flexible and dynamic schemes and how they will charge their rent because they understand that everyone is underpaying. So sticking to a very classic, rigid uh, rental scheme probably does not work. So we're seeing a lot of experimentation and imagination among retailers who are trying to get ahead of the curve. I am intrigued even by the notion, Brian, that, that loyalty appears to be dead. First, 
Is it dead? How are people rebuilding it? I wouldn't go as far as saying it's dead. I think it's been shocked. It's been jolted. All of the assumptions that guided um, predictive models on which brands were going to win, I've really been thrown out. We're finding in our consumer research that 75% of consumers report changing either a brand, a retailer they shop, or a place they start their journey. The amount of human uh, routine and behavioral change that's happened in the last 90 days is just unprecedented. Just to make that come to life, think about the grocery sector. Grocery is as tried and true as retail gets, right? Everybody has their go-to. It's either three blocks away or three miles away. They know their cash register person. They know the folks. We found that 25% of consumers are reporting they've changed their grocer in the last 60 days. This is what uh, I mean by a time of true routine shift and behavioral change. And so inside of that, your question about consumer uh, loyalty, we're finding that a significant proportion of consumer shifting is sticking. The game board is a complete, it's up for grabs, right? 20% of customers, you could argue in any individual category, are going to shift and stick. And so what I think what that means and the implication for management teams is setting your aspiration high, right? Asking yourself, how do I get on the right side of that K-shaped recovery, right? On the one side of the K and not the other. And making sure this isn't about incrementalism. How do I maintain my momentum or maybe add one or two share points? How do we truly change the game? How might you go from a number three player to a number one or add 20 points of market share in the next, call it 12 months? Those aren't crazy conversations to have. And we're finding a number of management teams, likely those on the, on the offense, having those discussions. Well, what if I'm a little late to the game, Amy, and I perhaps was not as quick or as deep in my investments? Tactically, I now have to set priorities. What are the areas that really move the needle right now? I think anything that has a direct interface with the consumer is where you want to start. As Brian mentioned, a lot of consumers are going through a fundamental shift, and the stickiness is determined on how good the experience was. So instead of uh, trying to do heavy lifting on completely redesigning your global supply chain network, I would start with the interface between you and the consumer and go back from that point. Because if you try to do too much within this very uh, challenging times, you may end up not really delivering on any one dimension uh, above and beyond the competition. So the rule of the game is to really focus sharply and start where it is a noticeable change to the end consumer. We hear a lot about how Gen Z engages. Um, Are there surprises along the line as to what perhaps we thought boomers, Gen X, millennials, or others have done that may be changing right now? Brian? We are seeing a couple things across the board with some of the cohorts you mentioned. Um, We are seeing Gen Zers uh, spending even more time on digital media than the other cohorts. We're also seeing uh, baby boomers and some of the older uh, generations actually being the ones to almost discover digital and its capabilities and sticking more so than the other generations. What surprised us is we're founding that uh, two cohorts in particular are the most promiscuous, if I can use that word, on where... Why not, right? Where they're spending their time and what brands they're sticking with. Uh, We're finding that uh, both the Gen Z uh, cohort as well as the higher income cohort are the two that are most likely to change brands or retailers 
if you think about brands who are always pursuing that next generation, right, the younger generation of consumers or those with uh, higher income, those are really the two battlegrounds that perhaps are the most challenging given the environment that uh, this pandemic has caused. What are the battlegrounds you're watching in Asia, Amy? I think those are similar to what um, Brian just uh, mentioned. One thing uh, that's quite uh, pronounced in Asia is video streaming. So even surprisingly with the baby boomers and the older generation who through this pandemic have been onboarded into e-commerce, even with that segment, uh, the way they want to uh, absorb information online to make a purchase is really skewed towards video streaming. It's come to a point where the brands have, during this pandemic, very uh, aggressively reallocated their digital marketing spend uh, to try to excel in platforms where video streaming is the norm. Because I am the daughter of a salesman, I do think that all of life is marketing and sales, which is, of course, not technically true. But on an individual level, are there lessons that we can take from even how the two of you are behaving differently? You've lived through this pandemic. Brian, I'm going to start with you. What are, what are you doing differently in terms of your own consumption? It's a great question of reflection, right? And if you'd asked me this six months ago, the answer would be different than three months ago. It would have been different than now. But I do think there's a real resilience uh, that's forced all of us to really reflect on this crisis and to really think about how you reframe it into an opportunity, Mm -hmm. right? For self-growth, for resilience, for, um, in my case, not getting on an airplane as much. So how do I redeploy the time to ensure I'm with family a little bit more or spending time with uh, my client base to help them through this time? So the first thing is just reframing what might be given to you as lemons and really trying to squeeze the lemonade. I think the second thing uh, that at least I'm trying to apply to my daily life is just the sustainability point. Cause boy, this uh, to me came out a little bit out of nowhere. Well, you're in California, of course, wildfires and that might've been a factor. That of course I'm now recognizing uh, the importance of just simple things like clean oxygen. But being able to get to a point where you force a different operating model, just as at the enterprise level, many management teams are trying to hit a new speed and a new agility in their own ways of working. But thinking about your own operating model, right? Setting barriers for when and when not to be working, um, thinking about operating at multiple speeds, I think it's a very valuable lesson, right? Of how mm-hmm. to manage the here and now, but also think a year or two years ahead in a scenario where nothing's clear. And then maybe the last thing I'll just say, you mentioned the wildfires. Uh, I personally have just realized how important it is to embrace gratitude for every moment. And I joke because just a month ago, I was sitting around complaining about the pandemic, how long is it going to be, how many lives are really at risk, and it's really uh, a detrimental situation. And then the fires come. And the last week, walking around San Francisco, I see so many people out and smiling. And it's because why? Because there's clean oxygen. The sun actually rose in the Mm. morning. We have blue skies. So it, it shows you the power of really being thankful for what you do have uh, in, in a time where that's really an important thing. Climate awareness is changing consumer patterns as well. You certainly hear companies talk about that. Amy, what about yourself? Brian's uh, points resonate with me personally. On a practical dimension, 
it's really managing against churn and fatigue. I think initially when we were caught by the pandemic, you know, by surprise, even internally as a firm, we had, and Brian knows this, countless webinars. And I guess with good intentions to try to hold the hands of our clients, many of whom were really getting anxious for good reason. And also uh, amongst ourselves, you know, we were all just so surprised and sitting here in Asia, it was quite um frequently that I would be doing webinars and podcasts and what have you in the wee hours of the evening. And these things take its toll. And I think we have to um, pay attention to the advice that we give our clients, which is not to go into overdrive or panic mode, but really to kind of step back and really rethink what does this mean in the short term and the long term in terms of my operating model and what uh, boundaries uh, between professional life and personal life am I going to set? Otherwise, things quickly become unsustainable. So on a practical level, I think it's really protecting against fatigue and and churn. The second uh, component would be perhaps changing the R in rapid recovery to reimagining revenue recovery, because I think this is all about reimagining a new future, a new way of life. And so it's actually a very precious opportunity for us to all look back and embrace change and do things differently because now we have the very precious opportunity to do so. I want to wrap up uh, in terms of just tying the loop a little bit back to that growth question. It feels a little like we're in a winner-take-all society at times when it comes to e-commerce. How optimistic are your clients about the opportunities they see going forward. Brian? I think it would be unfair to say everybody's optimistic. It really depends on the individual company and the individual management team. But I will tell you this. I have been impressed with the amount of resilience that I've seen across the board and in all kinds of sectors and in all kinds of management teams with the basic humanity and frankly teamwork that has been exhibited in the last six to nine months, the willingness to do whatever it takes, both to keep the business alive, but also to serve consumers, um, to do what's right in their local communities, uh, and and to really serve the broader good. It's been a, a very touching moment in our history, not just from a business perspective, but from an overall humanity perspective. And I'm quite proud of the way the private sector and businesses in general have responded to that. Stepping back and look at the entire community, I'm very optimistic about what lies ahead. Help us look around the corner. I'll go to you first, Brian, and then Amy. What's intriguing that's on your radar? I always have having conversations with executives about looking around the corner. One is to recognize the potential in what this moment represents, both for the company, but for your brand or for your enterprise and the market makes. This is a moment we'll look back on historically and say, remember when. And what you want to make sure you're doing is saying, I, as a leader and we as a team, use this time to do X. The second is that, I think this is a pretty obvious point in many cases, but it it is a time to act now and with purpose, with ambition and with boldness. And what is exciting about these kinds of moments is not only do they not come very often, but it's a time when teams come together and really make bold moves. So that'd be the second thing to look around the corner and say, are we being bold enough? And asking yourself, have we accomplished everything we'd like to accomplish given this is a once in a hundred year type of event? And then the final thing I just say would be 
uh, looking around the corner is this is a time to really reflect on what the future of the company is going to look like and not just be in crisis mode, as Amy and I have said, but to be able to really shape, not have it happen to you, but shape the future of the organization you're leading. Amy, as you look around the corner, what do you see? Yeah, the discussions that I'm having with my clients around what the future is and how the future can be different is really about, do you want to be a responding company or a reacting company, or do you want to be a shaper? And I think uh, the more we can encourage our clients to be bold, scary times, but it is an opportunity. And in a certain sense, how they spend time and how they reshape their strategy for the next six to 12 months will have really long-lasting consequences in what type of company or brand emerges in the future. So again, the question is, are you reacting or are you shaping? Great. Well, great advice. Brian, Amy, thank you very much for your thoughts. Thank you, Diane. Thank you. That was Brian Gregg in San Francisco and Amy Kim in Seoul. If you'd like to read more about their work on revenue recovery that is rapid, reimagined, and resilient, please go to McKinsey.com. Until next time, I'm Diane Brady. Thank you. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at McKinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.